0: Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 149. A father-son co-founder duel by the names of Graham and Chris McConnell are on the show today, and they have a company that is pretty dang awesome. I was out on the web, and I was doing a bunch of research, kind of pinging around, trying to find what kind of guests are going to be on the show and what kind of topics are interesting to me, and I know that would be interesting to you guys. And one thing that constantly rings in everybody's ears is liquidity in the privately held marketplace. Because we all know that capital is unbelievably difficult to come by. Equity is very expensive and it, and the money that comes with that is tied to personalities and a lot of different complications. And how can you get liquidity in a privately held company that is in some form or fashion like a public company? Well, that's exactly what Graham and Chris set off to do when they created Nth Round. They got a seed financing of $4.3 million and some really heavy hitters and some ridiculous backgrounds came to one place to try and figure this out. And what they did is they built this software platform that is built on blockchain that allows internal and invited to external parties to bid on shares of the company. So you can put up a percentage of the company and then people can literally bid on buying the parts of the business and it's anonymous. So therefore you don't know whether it's your coworker or whether it's your boss or whether it's an outside investor. So they're trying to create Create this feel of what it's like to invest in a public company and allows the owner to have some liquidity in order to raise capital in a fashion that's never been done before. And the backgrounds of Chris and Graham are pretty impressive that allow them to to try and tackle something that is not only unbelievably complicated from a technology perspective, but also unbelievably riddled with compliance. And they talk about in the show how they've been handling the conversations with the SEC, how their technology works. And these aren't just two guys and a bunch of people that are just trying to hack away and get this done. Chris has extensive experience with blockchain programming, artificial intelligence, process control, and public and private financing. After starting at the Dow Chemical, Chris co-founded CFM Technologies, a global semiconductor capital equipment manufacturing company that grew to 80 million in sales and 400 employees and it won public in 96 on the NASDAQ. And then he went on to form the Founders Group and a later a hedge fund. And he has a bunch of different patents. So he is totally in this for the long haul to help solve the problem. And his background lends him to be one of the players to do it. And then his son, Graham, runs all aspects of Nth round operations from product development to sales, support, marketing, customer support. And he is an entrepreneur with strong passions in finance and technology. And after stints at the TA Instruments in Savannah, Graham joined Relay Network, where he served as a product owner, managing priorities for a team of 12 software developers and test engineers. And because he loves finance so much, Graham then joined AJO Partners, which had 25 billion assets under management and was a top tier quantitative investment firm where he oversaw all the software development. So these two partnered up and then has a huge huge <laughs> board of directors and all these people that are coming together to try and figure out how to solve this problem. Because you know what the crazy part is? These days we're all invested in the public markets because we all have a 401k or some sort of investment management firm or whatever it is that we're involved in that has the S&P 500. And the reality is right now we have half the amount of public companies than we did 15 years ago. There's about 3,800 public companies right now. And there used to be twice as many back in the day. And what's happening, so the public has less investments to deal with and how to invest in, and it's more difficult, public companies are going public later, so the returns are a lot less, and the reality is we have five and a half million privately held companies that no one can get invested into unless they go through a guy who knows a gal who knows a guy who then finds a private equity firm who does an investment, and for the owners, We all know that it's unbelievably difficult to get our managers involved and to get outside investors involved and all these different red tape, you know, securities laws as far as accredited securities. it's all complicated and these guys are trying to tackle it and I was really impressed with a lot of the stuff that they had thought through and I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode because... At the bare minimum, I want you to take away that things are changing and there is a lot of people out there trying to solve the problem about how to help the backbone of America, which is the privately held business owners who cannot find liquidity, who have a very difficult problem raising capital to grow and have a very difficult time trying to transition this to other parties and to get their internal people involved. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If there's any requests that I have before you get into this episode, please go into iTunes, give me a rating. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this episode with Chris and Graham. This episode of Life After Business is
1: sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of
0: your choice at the price you want. Hey guys, how are you doing? Good, good. So we got we got Graham and Chris here, excited to have you guys in the show. And as we'll be getting into it, but you know, I was out and I was just telling you guys that I was out on uh, LinkedIn doing some rabbit trail, you know, searching for people and podcasts. And I got came across your guys's profile and then went into the website and I was like, oh my god, this is the most interesting thing I've seen in quite a while because you know, I've actually, ironically, a lot of the, the the handful of the last podcasts have been about just the constant inefficiency of the privately held market and compared to the public market and you know nth round, you guys are doing some pretty cool stuff so i you know the listeners might not be familiar with you which we will be getting or the, the the company which we'll be getting into but why don't you guys just kind of give a little bit of each of you guys backgrounds and then how you got to where you are today
1: yeah so i'll start um so i'm uh so i've been in, in software and finance my my entire life uh started out working for a, a startup in the suburbs of philadelphia here first couple of years out of college, um, and then moved over to an investment manager in you know, public equities here in Philadelphia. But one thing that I learned after, uh, after joining the startup was that I'm getting these, these options, and you know, they ended up being worth basically nothing. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I gave them up, but that made me realize that that's actually a common problem in, in many experienced developers or people in the startup community end up getting options, don't know what they're worth. And unless a miracle happens, they're probably not going to be worth anything. So that was one lesson that I, I, I'd i say led to what we're doing now. So I'll let Chris do his background.
2: Yeah, so I'm, I'm long in the tooth for sure. I've been uh, started a few companies uh, and I'm joining Graham in this one, which is really, really amazing. I've had equity issues throughout my entire career, starting with, you know, Stock option plans that uh, never became anything to desperately wanting all of our employees to own shares and fighting with our board on that and prevailing actually and all of our employees actually got uh, got a fair amount of money because we ended up taking that company public. But still have seen you know lots of issues with private shareholders, liquidity problems, owners of companies who struggle trying to figure out how to get to an exit. I've seen partners who like get into almost fist fights because they can't resolve their issues between each other. So I've seen a lot of stuff with equity. And, you know, when Graham uh, started saying, hey, could blockchain help this? I was like, seriously? And, you know, then one thing led to another and Anthran was born. And it is the most sort of miraculous, I would call it technology, software to solve just about every problem that I've encountered when it comes to uh, equity and, and
0: liquidity. Well, and what's interesting too, and, and just if you can kind of shed a little bit of light to Chris, as you had said, um, your, where your office and kind of the, the private equity exposure that you had. So not only did you go through some of this, but I think it was some interesting light that you shed on what you're seeing. I mean, because most of my clients are the listeners that they don't get the the opportunity to to be bellied up right next to a private equity firm to learn but not have to actually be partnered with them
2: (laughs) yeah yeah so i shared space with uh with a private equity firm middle market you know and i saw how they operate i saw the the funnel the deals that would flow through and you know the ebitda expectations that you know were way too high the thing that i think really struck me was their need for control i mean they were unabashed about saying We are only doing deals if we have complete control. And yeah, we'd like you to keep some skin in the game, but uh, the board, we're we're having at least one, if not two seats on your board, and we're going to make the decisions and we're running this company. So uh, let's go. (laughs) And it was, (laughs) as I told you before we got on the show, I mean, there was always a a fist pump, either, or a clenched fist. It was either a a clenched fist from doing a deal that they thought, you know, they were laughing because they got such a good price, or a fist pump because they were furious that uh, you know some some founder or something you know wouldn't understand where they were coming from and was negotiating <laughs> for you know gotten some leverage on them or whatever. Anyway, uh, it's
0: it's not
2: exactly uh, you know the kind and gentle world that many people might think it, it could yeah, or should be.
0: That's a good way to put it. I actually just interviewed this gentleman. His name was Brent. He actually wrote a book called "The Messy Marketplace." He's like it's all messy. There's we're all human, and it's just super, super messy. <laughs> well, and so I'm, you know, I'm curious, if, you know, Graham, do you, if you want to just maybe give a de- description of enthrall, and maybe then we can kind of tie it because I know, you know, I guess for the listeners and even for my own curiosity, I mean, we're saving a lot of my own qu- curiosity questions for the show. Is is you know, the problems that you're also solving because of your guys' backgrounds, there's a lot of the bigger overarching problems that I think we can talk about. But then, specifically, how I mean, I think your guys' platforms fixing or trying to fix some of that stuff. So, take, take that, I guess, however you want to kind of start, maybe with the technology and what you're doing. Yeah. So, as Chris mentioned, we're a software
1: company and we're going after a problem that is definitely messy. Uh, <laughs> it's a, a problem that is normally solved by, um, by broker dealers and through. Basically, smoke-filled rooms, uh, trying to make these private transactions go through. Whether it be uh, an employee that that has a, a big chunk of equity that wants to, to get some liquidity, or whether it's a company sale uh, or you know an acquisition, these are usually problems that that basically are done through very uh, involved processes involving uh, expensive lawyers and bankers. So, what, what we're trying to do is simplify all that with. Uh, With the technology that brings together companies that are either looking for funding or or searching for liquidity, and then investors uh, that are looking for direct access to deals. So our platform and with the clients that we have so far, they they each have their own distinct marketplace where they have digital shares represented as, as tokens on a blockchain, Ethereum blockchain. But that really uh, it enables them to whenever they want, without bothering the CFO, post their shares either or you know post a bid or an ask for for shares uh, and you know put that out without, without having to deal with all the restrictions and right of first refusal all, all of the normal complications that go along with with shares so we we tied you know blockchain technology with with a, a legal construct that's actually from the eighteen hundreds, originally used by J.P. Morgan, called a, a voting trust, and uh, so we married those two concepts together to, uh, to one, you know, remove some of those restrictions on the stock, you know. So, and, and the way that the voting trust does that is it it asks, or it asks that the the voting trust holders relinquish their vote, and that simplifies governance and does a couple of other really nice things like getting us out of the uh, the Investment Company Act. But you know, and then and then that really enables them to, uh, to, to enables us to create this online platform, which facilitates transfers. Which, uh, again, the the way it works today is so expensive. Broker dealers normally charge five to ten percent, uh, and you run into the kinds of issues, you know, messy issues that we were just talking about. So we're really just trying to simplify that that whole world, which is, continues to become a bigger and bigger problem with companies not wanting to go public,
0: uh, and VC, this VC world just continues to get bigger. Uh, it's, it, well, we were actually, I was just even talking about how, like, I mean, there was an article I read recently in the Wall Street Journal, about how, I mean, literally like all these shitty companies are just getting dumped on the public's lap because all the money's been made before. I mean, Uber's not even making any money <laughs> and now it's public. So in, in, so for for some of the people that you know we can kind of peel apart some of that stuff Graham um, that you're talking because I think it is an unbelievably interesting concept and you know when I look at so and actually just recently I interviewed uh, the CEO of axial.net I don't think you're familiar with them at all it's an online marketplace where they're kind of pin- or like are marrying up people but you have the world out there of public companies right where there's analysts there's a normal market efficiency right and then you've also got in real estate there's Zillow Right. So there's, there, it's becoming a little bit more fluid to do this stuff. But, you know, in the privately held sector of all these companies, there are about six million privately held companies out there. There is no standardization really even on business valuations. I mean, so there's the discounted cash flow, you know, and then, but then there's this company specific risk that uh, I've had a couple of people on my show where no one's really identifying that. So I think I'm curious on like how are you handling that? And then we can kind of layer on how like the, from the fluidity of this happens. But, identifying and, and getting to the point of this is what the company's worth because it's so different if like a private equity or strategic buyer pays a premium because of other strategic synergies versus internal cash flow being able to pay for itself like the internal rate of return how are you guys handling that yeah i mean that's a great question and
1: definitely it's true that there's a wide range of valuations even if you look at nine a valuations versus what VCs are putting, you know, what value VCs are putting in companies. And like you said, once they reach the public markets, the the public realizes that, hey, you know, this wasn't actually worth as much as <laughs> as the VCs were saying. So to us or to me personally, I think the the true valuation really comes out once you have uh, buyers and sellers interacting and, and settling on that price. Um, we, we think that foreign NA valuations are kind of BS. Because <laughs> on one hand, a company is saying we're worth almost nothing because we want to put a, a low, uh, a low basis on our options, mm-hmm. and then on the other hand, to VCs they're you know pumping up the price as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So for, for our companies, we we encourage them. Of course, they're, they're private companies, so really it's entirely up to them what what information they want to disclose. But we encourage people to release financials and you know, balance statement and P&L and kind of leave it up to, to their investors, their shareholders to uh, decide on a price. And, and yeah, privately,
2: of course, within their world card. Right, right. Not to um, the public,
1: necessarily.
2: Yeah.
0: So then you're saying like, so like, which is interesting. So is it like, let's say before you maybe even answer this, maybe kind of give an explanation of who this is for, because I think you did it before we hit the record button. So like, who is the target market of the, of the platform?
1: Yeah. So we have a couple of different verticals. One is family businesses. Those are, uh, especially if they're multi-generational, those are perfect examples because, well, one, because there's one share class that makes things very easy. Everyone can interact in one place, but also because this actually causes liquidity in general, causes issues for family businesses because there's disagreement about when to sell the company and what direction it's being taken. So that's, that's one area. Another would be startups, whether they're raising new funding or whether they're, they've gotten to a point where they have some long-in-the-tooth investors. So, you know, and, and when it comes to startups, you know, when, when you're raising money and you can tell an investor, I don't need to have an exit strategy because we're going to have this platform sitting alongside the company. So whenever you feel the need for liquidity, go there and, and, and post your shares, that brings a lot of comfort to investors and then and then the third, I guess would be I guess similar, but existing businesses, maybe with lots of shareholders uh, that they, they want a place to to transact into they, they want liquidity uh, is the mm-hmm. easiest way to say it they have maybe it's even a, the founder or employees that have been there long enough and, and deserve. Maybe they have a kid going off to college. They they uh, in our opinion deserve some liquidity. So mm-hmm. those are the three different areas. I was I was um, a couple months ago. I was having
2: breakfast actually, and, and our waitress overheard me talking about about and and liquidity platform in the walled Garden. And she's like, she stops me after I paid the bill. Like my friend left, and she goes, "Did I hear you correctly? It sounds like it sounds like you're almost NASDAQ for a private company." And I said, "Well, that's not exactly right, but." We do host a liquidity platform where shareholders of a private company can freely buy and sell the shares amongst each other. You know, it's a walled garden, so it's protected. She goes, oh, my God, my daughter's starting a restaurant. She wants her to cook and she wants the staff to all be shareholders. She doesn't know what to do. Can she call you? Can she call you? And I said, of course, I'd be happy to talk to her. It's not very expensive. We can do this easily for her. And it will give her the flexibility to share equity and the comfort of knowing that the governance is Is completely hers. She votes all the shares, Mm -hmm. but but shares the economic interest of her new restaurant.
0: So, okay, which I think I mean conceptually, I I I doubt anybody that's listening is arguing with how needed this is. So then, it kind of comes into the because I mean I mean whether I mean I just think about every single one of my clients or anybody I've ever worked with or even been in my CEO peer groups that this is the problem, right? And so then you know one of the questions that I would have is how would you know, when you said that it's up to them on how much, whether to put, you suggest that they put financials or balance sheet or whatever. like, so what is the like process of doing this and what is mandatory, not mandatory? How is it being regulated Cause I, or like, you know, agreed upon? Because I think, you know, the asymmetrical information could be a potential problem, right? The owner says this, the owner values it at this. And then realistically, you know, when you say, because in the normal situation, it goes to market, and sophisticated buyers say, "No, your company's not worth shit because look at all of these reasons," <laughs> right? So, like, which is what happens a lot. Versus, you know, an internal manager, like, let I, I me. Mean, this might be a good way of just believe me saying it is the the managers have this emotional like I want it, but then they don't realize that there is no value there. So there's a chance of potentially having that asymmetrical information issue. So, what's the process to going through, and how do you guys handle that stuff?
1: Yeah. So one thing that that we realized very early on was was that there's a actually a regulatory requirement here that that buyers and sellers have access to the same information that there's an equal playing field. So that is a big component of our of our platform is this investor relations piece where companies can post information about their you know their mission, their bios uh and and like I said the the financials. So and and that really does create a, an equal playing field. Uh, so as soon as someone's invited, even if they're a even if they're coming in as a new buyer, you know, providing some of the liquidity and buying from a a, a current shareholder, they instantly get access to the full history of information that come, came out. It's almost like a virtual data room, like one of the deal rooms, like one of the investment bankers use. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there's not there's not a whole lot to that actually. It's it's we host data for them. Right. The important piece is the privacy. You know, yep. companies like private companies want to keep their information private. So we we you know spend a lot of time thinking about privacy and, and the invitation process and how do we put as much control into the owner's hands as possible. And then once someone's in, how do we then educate the, the user? And we've we've actually done some interesting projects with a company here in Philadelphia called Biz Equity that that specializes in valuation but how do we give the, the shareholders then the, the tools they need to to come up with a price?
0: Do you guys work with Biz Equity?
1: Yeah, well, they, they they may become a client here, uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> but yeah, we we haven't officially released anything with them, but we're definitely talking with them.
0: Well, yeah, I've, I've uh, I'm I do not know if it was ever on the podcast, but I ended up talking to a couple of guys over there. They were part of our part of some of our offering, and in you know, and again, I love what they're trying to do too of trying to get the valuation somewhat out there. And that's where I think, you know, as I've ran their system and their stuff across everybody else, that's where the whole valuation thing is still just like, everybody's got such a different approach on how the valuation works. Like, you know, and this is where, um, uh, Ken Sanginario, he owns a company called the Value Opportunity Profile. And, um, that's he's got a system in it where he just talks about everything comes down to the discounted cash flow for an intrinsic value versus a strategic value. And I just like so. What is the process of saying okay? Like if I wanted, like if I wanted, like I mean, I got so many clients. Whether it's a, a family business transition, or there was a part, or there's a client of mine, friend of mine, who it's a software company. They have nine, I think it's like close to nine, six to nine uh, shareholders, different classes, different percentages. How does it go in there? Like explain the process of like the valuation towards putting the governance in place for this stuff. And then, how does that work? And like, and would every single one of the shareholders or potential shareholders have to have their own attorneys? And you know, I mean, how does that all? How does the whole process work?
2: Yeah. So, so this is a this is quite different than an M and A, uh, you know, private equity kind of deal. And those are typically, you know, you mentioned data rooms. I mean, those things tend to be pretty big with lots and lots of data. Um, you know, for because we're a, a platform, uh, a market, in effect, a software market, mm-hmm. there are bids and apps that you can see the depth of the market. In fact, so, you know, for our own company, actually, we obviously are our own customer. Uh, and we have one shareholder who is who, you know, she's a dear friend of mine and wants to buy a ski condo. She's in her 60s, mid 60s. And she's like, you know, would it be okay if I sold some of some of my shares? And I said, Of course. So she gets on. And I coached her a little bit. I said, Look, Jennifer, don't don't put up one you know ask and one price. Why don't you spread it a little bit? Why don't you break it up into smaller pieces at different at different prices and just see where the market takes it? Just see what kind of appetite there was. And sure enough, you know her low ask got snapped up quite quickly, uh, and her high asks are still sitting there today. So. You know you're when you have an open market, not open it's a, it's a walled garden, mm-hmm. but when it's transparent to the participants right who are who are inside the walled garden, they get to explore where where pricing makes sense, and they get to look at the history of where pricing you know made sense before It's very different than mm-hmm. a typical private equity sort of i'm going to break your arm
0: transaction mm-hmm. which which i that absolutely makes sense i just think so how like if someone's getting onboarded onto this is it pretty much just in in the um in the hands of the owner of like hey this is the this is the overall price that i want to get it and i'm curious on how you actually do the liquidity how actually the funds are flowing and where the i mean if there's banks helping finance it but what are the is, is that making sense because i go back to the asymmetrical information you know so yeah you, you throw the deal room in there and so it's the financials i guess and the context of, of my question, guys, is most of these, most privately held businesses run their financials like crap, you know what I mean? Like, and, or it's not, it's not up to gap. you know, there's, there's a lot like, and this is where the, this is where the private equity firms take advantage of because there's true value there, but it hasn't been maybe institutionalized to the point where you can actually see that transparency, Chris. So I don't know what, how, how are you getting people to be on a level playing field from understanding what the price should be? So right now we we
1: actually just post PDFs. So we don't have a, a standardization uh, the, the way that you're talking about it. Definitely we're we're exploring that, uh, and that's a lot of what BizEquity does. Is is they have standard fields that that mm-hmm. every company is required to fill out and say, okay, now we can put you all on the same level playing field. So yeah, I mean right now it's. We're we're still going through a bit of a learning process as to how do we you know how do we do that without then creating some some way of gaming the system right uh, because that's, that's the other issue that you then run into is if someone figures out that hey if 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 we can get bump this number up really high then then you know our valuator or, or the the valuation engine will will come up with a very high number for my company so mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a it's a balance that we definitely have to walk between standardization and not allowing people to game it you Well, know, I, think, I think there's something to be learned from the public
2: markets here though too I mean when a typical uh, retail investor goes on to Yahoo Finance and decides that they want to buy Tesla or whatever mm-hmm. you know they don't spend a lot of time poring over financial statements typically what they do is they look at the chart and they go wow it looks kind of cheap right now I think <laughs> yeah. I'll buy some Right, or gosh, this looks pretty expensive. I think I'll hold off, mm-hmm. and that's much more of the way our system operates,
0: mm-hmm.
2: so it's much more like like that experience, um, yeah. and I know that private equity guys don't think this way at all that they mm-hmm. want to you know take a tour of the factory, they want to interview customers, they want to do stuff that you don't want them to get anywhere near, but they're you know desperately trying to figure out ways to make. And, and by the way, as you know, it's very competitive among PE firms. So mm-hmm. they're also trying to do this slyly so that other PE firms don't hear about it and get in the, in the mix. Mm-hmm. I just think this is a very different environment. And, you know, we're not talking about selling the company lock, stock and barrel. We're talking about one shareholder buying from another shareholder or the owner of the company deciding to invite in a new person that they think would be great as, a, as an additional participant. Mm-hmm wants to invest in the company and you invite that person in, the, the owner invites that person in and now can see the the book of, of ask orders and act on them or, or the book of bid orders, or he can put, sorry, he can put in his own bid, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, it's just a really different approach to how to buy shares of a private company as opposed to buying the private company lock, stock, and barrel.
0: Well, what's, what's interesting guys is, is, you know, a lot of the problems with business valuations, which is what by the way, biz equity doesn't do. So I would my I would argue that the one thing that they don't do well is identifying company specific risk. So like which they just have the safe harbor of two to eight percent, which is total garbage because you don't know whether two companies, A or B, have an ERP system or don't. They've got the same financials, but like the company specific risk could be wildly different. However, in your situation, just the general environment of it is. The employees actually know the company-specific risk more than anybody else, right? So they, exactly. intuitively, to your point, Chris, will that that'll be factored in the pricing, actually. <laughs> exactly.
2: exactly. This is about voting, right? Mm-hmm. This is about a bunch of yeah. people voting on the valuation, not mm-hmm. you know some analyst sitting in a room trying to justify it. And mm-hmm. I was just gonna, you know, as you were talking there. I mean, the difference in valuation, a valuation can change dramatically based on whether a person decides to stay or leave I after know. the company is sold. I mean, that could cut the valuation in half
0: or worse if it's a key person. I know. And it doesn't, and none of that stuff gets factored in the business valuation, which, exactly. which is just ridiculous. How are you guys doing? How is the actual liquidity happening? So how are funds flowing and what what is the actual mechanisms behind the scenes? So it, there are two ways to do it. Uh, and, and a lot of it depends on
1: how much, uh, how much monetary value we're talking about. Uh, so the first way, if, if you really like U.S. dollars, you can do a direct transfer to another participant and then basically have them, them wire the funds to you. We're not in love with that because, and this goes back to something we were just talking about with, with employees being owners, uh, they should actually, we think the participants should all be anonymous or, or pseudonymous, I guess is the correct term for it. You don't want other participants saying, oh, you know, I know this, I know who this person is and I know that they're selling at this price and they must know better than others. You know, mm-hmm. we'd rather have everyone be uh, just an account number trading. So, but then the other way to do it, which, which we like a lot better is, is going through and, and using the, the full power of, of the blockchain, which is to, Send the funds in uh, in the currency of the blockchain that we're on, which is ether. So it's, you know, you you put up your bids, or you uh, you put up your bids for with real ether, and then uh, the tokens and the ether are transacted at the you know at the exact same time. That gets us out of all kinds of things, like being a transfer agent and and mm-hmm. and exchanging important or or uh, private information amongst participants. Whereas now it can all be done on blockchain and we have a price associated with it that doesn't need to be brought in from an outside source. Yeah. I think it's important to recognize that we're not a fund, right? We're not mm-hmm. a source of funds. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, we're not
2: a broker dealer. Uh, so we can't even hold ourselves out as being able to find you know, buyers for you. It's not what, the, what our business, we're a software company. Mm-hmm. We do have friends and, and you know, we certainly can you know, make, make casual introductions. So it's a little bit up to the company, you know, maybe they want to reshuffle the deck a little bit between shareholders. If And if they need, if there are more sellers than buyers, then it's definitely up to the company to be able to, you know, bring liquidity sources of, of capital to the walled garden to be able to buy the shares from those who want to sell. So again, we're a software company that has figured out a way to provide you know, a compliant and transparent platform to allow buying and selling to happen in a very comfortable, transparent, regulatory compliant manner.
0: So then is there like, if let's say I own the company, I got, you know, seven other owners and we wanted to reshuffle the deck. i mean, I'm literally working with the client right now. And this is where an, an ESOP or non-leveraged ESOP or some sort of partnership. I mean, like you're talking spread. I mean, trust me, I literally just went through a use case of what this would have potentially worked where like, I mean, the shuffling of how much work that takes and like how the funds flow and all that stuff. So in that case, you know, a lot of the challenges with family businesses and, or, you know, management pilots of the managers or family don't have the money to provide the liquidity. Right. So in the neat, in the, the ESAP world, you know, they become a non-taxable taxable entity, right? So the, the, that entity can take out a loan and pay it back pre-tax. So there's enough cash flow to self-sustain the debt repayments. I'm just curious on like, do you have banks that you actually are being progressive in this stuff that are providing the people that don't have money to come in and be able to provide the liquidity, or is it like the business entity itself that's taking out the loan and paying these people? I'm just curious on like actually when you're bringing the capital, how how would that actually work? We haven't done a, a restructure quite like that yet that it requires borrowing money.
1: I, I definitely foresee that. Happening because uh, we we hear about that a lot, but yeah. So I mean, we, we we're happy to work with with other banks to to facilitate that. But you know, we just haven't we haven't run into it. We maybe it's because we we're talking about uh, more bite sized chunks of equity rather than like like Chris said, selling you know a big chunk of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we, even if we do have in the example where we do have founders. Selling off some of their ownership, they still do it in in smaller increments than than let's say putting up. And we actually encourage them to do that because that's another
0: piece of finding the, the right price is break it down into smaller chunks. over time versus like And do it over, so time, versus like, doing it over yeah. time versus because like I think about maybe maybe it has to do with some of the the companies that I'm working with. are, you know they they're looking for one to four or five years out, and it might be a two to you know thirty million dollar valuation. So it's a little bit more the the middle market, lower middle market where, you know, they want to kind of maybe div- divest of a bigger chunk here and there. And that's where the, you know, the manager might be making under 200 grand, but hasn't saved up enough money to be able to to, you know, wire them 500 grand to a million dollars. And in, that's where the contract for deeds or, you know, the promissory notes come in. It's more like, how do you actually structure the financing to make that work? Yeah. And that, and that goes back to
1: the the fact that, you know, we're, this is so much, so much different from the current world because usually when you, when you hire a, a team to work on a transaction like that, it's one and done. You don't want to mm-hmm. go through it all again. Mm-hmm. But with this, it's permanently in place. So you can, you can play around and, and get, you know, in, in, an, you know, In 10 minutes, be go through a transaction and say, "Okay, that was cool. Let's try it again at this price and at this quantity." Mm -hmm. So you can do a lot more. It's just so much more flexibility that you have. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, our system would cost a fraction. I mean, an order of magnitude less than the cost of one typical private equity transaction. Mm -hmm. I'm not kidding you. So you know, our We're, you know, depending on the size of your company, anywhere from $4,000 to $12,000 a year to host the whole system. Mm -hmm. And once it's in place, people can use it. We don't charge any fees, right? There's no brokerage fees, none of that. So people can, you know, use it in any way they desire. And again, it's such a great way to get some liquidity for those who need it. And the truth is, is that most of our clients. You know, when we say, Hey, are you, you know, do you need someone? Because we have people who ask us this all the time, you know, can we invest in some of your companies? So we ask the question, are you looking for new investors? And every single one of them says, no, 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 we've got plenty
0: of demand. You don't have to worry about the demand side. So what is the typical adoption rate of like employees? I'm just curious, like in that. And then like what percentage of the company are people kind of chunking out? I mean, is, is there a recommended, like, what do you guys see? What is, what is typical? I mean, I mean, employees love it. Uh, I would say, as a, as a
1: group, employees love this more than more than anyone else because it's something that that just has never been available to them before, and 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 actually creates a lot of transparency for them, so they can get an idea of how much are their how much are their options worth. And you know, a lot of times founders hear that and they think, oh no, well then how am I going to retain employees? But it actually, with this system, you can put as many restrictions in places as you want to. Let's say uh, let's say employees fully vested but you only want to open them up to ten percent of their mm-hmm. of their ownership in liquidity, that can be done very easily. So any any of the kinds of, of restrictions that, that the owners like can still be put into place and maybe even be done in a more creative way. Incentive based, or you know, maybe it's not even an annual vesting schedule. Maybe maybe you want to make it a daily vesting schedule. It's mm-hmm. with with software all of this can be done. You know, the fact is is
2: that employees that you give liquidity to you fall so deeply in love with you and become so loyal to you that they're never going anywhere. Mm-hmm. All they want to do now is rave about how much they like. Working for you and for you. In fact, we stopped doing options. We're, we're, we're just about to can't have a board meeting to cancel our option plan and replace it with grants because the, the visibility to liquidity makes owning the, the underlying equity worth 10 times more than mm. owning the options, which are these frilly pieces of paper that no one understands and sticks in a bottom drawer because they've heard so many times that they never become worth anything. Well, I, we, we just recruited some advisors, right? And uh, we kind of asked around, and people said, Well, you know, are these really top, top talent advisors? Just, these are some of the most, you know, well known names around. And we said, Well, how much do you think they're going to need? You know typically one to one to either a half or one of the, percent of the company in options is normal so we thought about that and Graham said well to hell with it we should be doing what we espouse let's grant them shares in the form of tokens on our on our liquidity platform so we went to these guys and we Graham said, "How would how would it be if we gave you ten thousand dollars worth of tokens? Well, you'd think that we just handed them, you know, the philosopher's stone. I mean, they were <laughs> so excited and immediately said yes. Versus us having to maybe offer them fifty or hundred thousand dollars worth of options. it's really it, immediate.
0: Well, I was gonna say, like, I mean, technically, it'd be all, you, you could almost argue that it is ex- essentially the same value because I mean, it's almost like the same thing with phantom um, stock that I see. You guys, were like, I mean, I know too many story. I mean, yet." If you if you structure the comp plans the right way, but you think about how much legal fees and how all the stuff that you have to do to set the comp plans up the right way, versus just letting it naturally happen. Whereas in the, you know the phantom stock, that what once I and mean, plenty of stories where it's the golden carrot where there's no annual cash bonuses or anything like that, so it ends up being like this golden carrot that's so far out and kind of like what you're probably dealing with Graham in the in the startup place where it's just like. It's too far and too ambiguous of when and how this will ever happen. And I, I mean, I know people where they're like literally freaking miserable in their job, but they won't leave because of that. And it's not good for anybody. <laughs> exactly. I was just going to mention, since you had asked about adoption,
1: that at the other end of the spectrum, there's employees that love it, but we actually run into some VCs, especially East Coast VCs, that they hear about this and they think, "Well, hell, heck, no! I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna." Allow anyone else to get liquidity before I do. So, but that creates all kinds of unintended consequences. We've mm-hmm. even met founders that are shopping their company around because they personally need liquidity, and it, it, it's not at all what the VCs had had intended. Um, but you know, and like I like I alluded to with the West Coast VCs, we're actually seeing a big difference. NEA backed us, and they love this idea. It, it Provides them a lot of flexibility too. They don't. They've got all kinds of companies that they would love some liquidity on. But you know, some of the East Coast companies or VCs, they'll say, "I want a big exit."
0: And if it's not a big exit, then Mm -hmm. the company should die. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the VC world, right? Versus like you know, the the more the the PE world or the people that are more professional. And this is where interesting, guys. I'm curious. Like, one is like what percentage of the company that people put up on the market? I mean, like that you're seeing is it the whole thing or they they chunk it out? Now, especially,
1: you know, we we just started mid last year. So we encourage people to start out with a small percentage and they can always increase that percentage. Mm-hmm. So 10%, you know. Is,
2: is, yeah. I mean, Jennifer's selling, well, she started at $30,000 worth and because the price went up, uh, it's now, you know, over $50,000 worth. And you can imagine how, how happy she
0: is. That's awesome. She's late right now. She buy two ski condos. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's awesome. And what is the like the bigger the bigger mission that you guys are like? What are the the milestones? I mean, obviously you've got some probably pretty big grand visions as far as what you, what the platform is capable of. But so what are the milestones that you guys are marching towards? What are the what are the big you know what would you what would you deem a success? Yeah. So
1: by the end of this year, we'd love to have at least fifty fifty clients on the platform and we know that we're tar- targeting just one side of a two-sided marketplace. So yes, we're going after companies initially, but the, the plan is to then start to, to create a, a list of investors that want direct, ac- direct access to deals, and they want a buffet of, of deals that they could possibly invest in. So the idea is to have 50 or so companies waiting for them when, when we do decide to bring them in. And then at that point, we can start to become almost we've called it like an e-harmony of, of mm-hmm. private investments. So companies look are looking for a specific kind of investor that maybe likes you know their industry and has experience in their industry, they can they can find them through 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 the platform. And then on the other side, investors can find their the companies that, that are good for them based on their mm-hmm. risk profile and things like that. So becoming that matchmaking service I think is where the value of this really
0: Becomes extraordinary. Yeah, and that's where that, that actually. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris.
2: I was just going to say, you know, there's, there's also a democratization uh, ideal that we really are anxious. You had mentioned, you know, would you say six or five million private companies? Yeah, in there's the US. 27
0: million incorporated, and there's six million uh, companies with employees.
2: Yeah i think 5.5 million have 50 or more employees if i'm on one of the one statistic that i read and you know there's only 3700 public companies today
0: half half is what it was 15 years ago
2: exactly so you know that means like for 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 every public company there's something like you know 1500 private companies right and this technology could be pervasive. Everybody could have it. It's just not that expensive. I mean, it could be, you know, it could be like buying, you know, a a, a suite from Microsoft practically. Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't you have a liquidity platform that your shareholders have access to and that you have access to so that you can really dramatically enhance the value of your company? Because I'm sure you're familiar with the famous, you know, illiquidity discount, right? Mm DLLM and that typically runs anywhere from 25 to 50 yep. percent. So if you flip that around and you think about the, the markup that your company, you know, the pop that your company could get in value by availing your shareholders liquidity, you could see anywhere from a 30 to even a hundred percent jump in the value of your company.
0: And that's well, huge. Well, it's Well, hundred percent, and then even to expand on that is that you know the one thing that privately held companies don't get is other people giving their insight you know what i mean because like you have all the, the 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 analysts and their advice factored into the price of the public markets versus you i mean most owners are just running blind based on what they believe in their gut which you know God forbid, I mean, there's not really any other options. <laughs> so then, you know, I, I think that also provides, you know, you being able to ask the question, well, why is the value like this? What else do I need to do to increase the value? Like, you know, the biggest challenge that I've seen guys is like, like and my dad and I were the same, same ways. I mean, I've been part of Vistage and all these, you know, CEO peer groups that you may or may not be familiar with, but like everybody only talks about top line. And I'm like, that has like has to do with value, but very little to do with it. It's all these underlying things that are like significantly important that but you don't really understand how to view that stuff. So to your point, Chris, I mean, this is something that points everybody in the right direction of measuring value instead of measuring top line. And the, the you know, the more people that have insight into that, the more you can factor that into your strategy. We haven't really talked about the investor relations and how useful that is
2: to a company owner. I think that's something that you're yeah. Value.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's something that we've spent a lot of time on recently. Is is just uh, the the importance of communication between owners and shareholders. We've we've been experiment, experimenting with a bunch of different ways to communicate, and we've actually landed on on video. We hmm. we're, we're really liking video as a format to to communicate, and that can have all kinds of positive uh, effects. And when it comes to to companies that are seeking the next round of funding or seeking more funding, that can be the difference between getting it and not because we hear some some angels say, I only hear from companies when they want money and that's not a good feeling for an <laughs> investor. Um, so having, you know, and it doesn't take very long to just foster a good relationship between shareholders and, and owners. So that's something that we've written quite a bit about on our website and, and are trying to promote. Yeah, it's built into our code. Yeah.
0: Yep. Well, and, 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 actually I was, I, I remember what I was going to say earlier and you guys kind of talked about it Um, when you're talking about matchmaking is I think that there's this huge opportunity. I really do believe, especially as that most of these boomers are going to be uh, transitioning. So Chris, I have those numbers that we were talking about. It's like two thirds of them are going to transition somehow in the next, you know, five to seven years is I think there's the opportunity to have Like, so if if I think about like the CEO peer groups that I've been in, like, you know, everybody else knows each other's companies or each other. And who, you know, a decent amount about each other. I have, I would, a lot of people would invest in each other's companies. You know what I mean? As a a way of diversification going, okay, well, I understand these privately held companies. So it's not just like the big institutions. It's literally like, it's literally just the other CEO peers of yours saying, okay, I believe in you, but right now there's no way of dealing with that and giving you, you know, couple grand here 20 30 100 you know 200 whatever, whatever the price might be but i think there's a huge opportunity to use the, the ceo peer groups as a as a mechanism to that, to do that
1: for sure we have, we have a company in our building here that as soon as they heard us, uh, heard us pitch they said well i would love to diversify out of my company and into some of my friends companies because we he recognizes that that private companies are where the highest you know the, the yeah. most growth potential is but he just wants to diversify out of his own company some. So that was really cool. Yeah. Cool idea. And a lot of people talk about how
2: great it would be to own a piece of SpaceX. Well, you know what? That dream could come true pretty soon. If we have our way, you'll be able to buy some SpaceX.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You know, I guess is if, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of ground guys, but is there, you know, a couple of things that we haven't talked about that you want to bring back up um, or unhighlight uh, or, or, I'm sorry, if there's something we've talked about that you want to bring back up and highlight and leave our listeners with, or if there's something we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that you, you leave everybody with, what would it be?
1: Um, I mean, it, well, we kind of just covered the, the, you know, the huge opportunity here and the fact that democratization is... is the, the power of democratization is, is so huge here. Um, the fact that retail investors don't have access to a lot of the highest growth investment opportunities out there but another thing which I think we, we only very lightly touched on was was compliance and the fact that, you know, the, the reason why so many people shy away from this is because of compliance and, and the SEC. But we've actually, I was just on the phone with, with Martha Miller at the SEC on Friday and we met with Commissioner Pierce in the fall. We've had nothing but good experiences with the SEC hmm. and they've, they've more or less blessed what, what we're doing here as, as something that... Could really change change the way could change the, the private finance world. We even talked to uh, to Commissioner Pierce about the accredited investor limit, and and she said well, that should go away entirely, <laughs> which we were really surprised to hear. But because um, they so have
0: now got what is it the uh, Regulation A and D? I mean, so they're trying. It sounds like they're being pretty they positive. Yeah. yeah, they're they really are. trying,
2: but they would rather have you know these. These things happen in the private marketplace. That's why I think they're so excited about us. I mean, Commissioner Pierce was glowing when we were with here because she thinks that markets are broken. You know, she just sees it and she says, you know, we need people like you who are thinking creatively and can fix our markets in the United States. She was very, very supportive yeah. and has been continuously.
0: Well, that's, I think that's, one
2: thing that I would like to make sure the listeners hear is that, you know, with a liquidity platform in place, um, you have the opportunity to get some liquidity without giving up any control. In fact, mm. while consolidating control. So anybody who buys your shares, you're going to continue to vote those shares.
0: Can you so explain that a not, little bit more about how that works?
2: Yeah, yeah sure. So uh, as Graham mentioned, um, we use a voting trust as the construct for this. It's, a, uh, it's an exemption from the 40 Act. Most people are probably are familiar with 3C1 and 3C7. Uh, This is 3C12. And so anybody, any voting trust uh, is exempt from the 40 Act. And and regardless of the number of participants and the kind of participants, there's nothing about a accredited investor. Hmm. There's nothing about a 500 or 2,000, you know, limitation on the number of shareholders. But the voting trust, by its definition, says that the participants relinquish their vote to the trustee. And the trustee is going to be you cool. the owner of the company so as soon as anybody enters the walled garden
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, one way or another, they're going to relinquish their vote to you which puts you in complete control and simplifies governance and yet allows you to share uh, the economic benefits of being an owner of your company
0: that's pretty cool because like even like what most <laughs> what most people don't understand I, I, or very vaguely understand is that when they give even one percent to someone else they have a fiduciary and prudent responsibility of disclosing ridiculous amounts of information and control and all this stuff that they, they just i mean the, the the hair that comes with just one share of equity at this point and i don't know if that changes a little bit or if it if because the trust is the there's the the gatekeeper of this is that impact how that works? So there's a there what we w- look at is uh, a
2: regulation uh called 4A1 and a half uh that governs uh the transfer of private securities between two parties and in that statute uh there is a requirement that uh that the buyer have access to reasonable information about the company it can be yeah. in a private setting right this doesn't mean that the company has to dispose it to the world it's just that the buyers, the participants, need to have access to re- – and they don't even specify what that needs to be, so the company really can, can decide what it is. But, again, we think that, you know, in this day and age of open-source software, uh, it's just the right thing to do to share <laughs> reasonable information. Yeah. I mean, why not? Yep. Uh, and so that's really the um, – that's the guiding light uh, behind what we're doing is, is this regulation for a one-and-a-half.
0: Well, I, I think it's, you know, just going back to where you're saying, like, the, the, the big picture of what you guys are trying to do and the, the, the public markets are broken. I mean, like, and people, I think people inherently know that, but they just don't know why or how. But, like, unless you get into the world like we are where you're digging in the weeds and you just realize that the people that are making the money are the people at the top shuffling the money around. But, like, there's, there has to be economic value and profits that fund everything, which is essentially the backbone of America, which is all the companies you're talking Right there's no there's less financial engineering and it's really just gross profit coming in from products and services that are sold.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think the one thing that's really cool is that you can lay a, a liquidity platform, the voting trust, on top of any structure. So mm-hmm. you can lay it on top of an LLC, you can lay it on top of an S corp, you can lay it on top of a C corp, you can lay it on top of anything you want. It's a trading
1: platform. It's, uh, it's a very thin layer that yeah. it, it actually it's. The fact that it's called a trust is a bit of a misnomer because right. it predates trusts in the States, which happened in the mm-hmm. you know, 40s. Interesting.
2: It's a contractual agreement
1: among yeah.
0: shareholders. Super cool. Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun. What is the, what's the best way for the listeners to get in touch with you and to learn more?
1: Uh, nthron.com. You can message us directly. So feel yeah, yes. free to reach out. It's a weird name, right? Yeah.
0: People go, is it ninth
2: round? <laughs> what's it, what? What's N? So it's like nth degree, right? And we our byline is the power of liquidity, right? Because n is like the power of whatever, and it's like the you know a round, b round, so this is the nth round. So once you do this, you don't need to do it again. So and we have uh, some of our friends saying, oh, it means. It means I've had so much to drink that I can't even remember what round it is. I'm a
0: call. Yeah, you're buying and selling while you're while you're inebriated. Perfect. <laughs> no, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Very much appreciate coming on the show. Thank you,
2: thank you for having it's us. Really great. Thanks, Ryan.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode with Chris and Graham. I have to say my biggest takeaway out of this is that people are trying to solve this problem. And I'm getting more and more excited as I hear people like Elon, who was on the episode recently with Firepower Capital. And I hear what Enthron is doing. And I just hear people, even in the private equity world, that are trying to change how financing for companies works. Privately held companies are the backbone of America and the financing mechanisms and the transition things uh, that are available from partners. And it just, it's, it seems to me to be too broken and it's just super exciting to hear people that are trying new things. So if there's one big takeaway I have for you is if you're looking for an answer, please do not accept the first answer that comes to you. No matter what advisor it's from, Search high and low on the internet reach out to someone you trust, ping me or my team. I don't even care. If you know what you want, I swear on my grave, there's a way to reverse back into what it is that you're looking for, whether it's certain dollar amount, some sort of financing, trying to give it to someone, transition it to someone. There's a way to get it done. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you had a couple good takeaways. If you enjoy this, please go into iTunes, give me a rating. I will be forever indebted to you. Otherwise, I will see you next week.